The market doesn't joke around, so why would you? Get serious. Choose Tasty Trade. Tasty Trade gives you the tools you need to make smarter moves. Dig into data with advanced charting, track profit accurately with order chain trackers, see risk clearly with curve analysis, and trade with low-capped commissions, stocks, options, futures, and more. All on one platform. No wonder serious traders choose Tasty Trade. Join the club, genius. Tasty Trading is a registered broker-dealer and member of FINRA and SIPC. Homes.com knows that when it comes to home shopping, it's never just about the house or condo. It's about the home. And what makes a home is more than just the house or property. It's the location and neighborhood. If you have kids, it's also schools, nearby parks, and transportation options. That's why Homes.com goes above and beyond to bring home shoppers the in-depth information they need to find the right home. And when I say in-depth, I'm talking deep. Each listing features comprehensive information about the neighborhood, complete with a video guide. They also have details about local schools with test scores, state rankings, and student-to-teacher ratio. They even have an agent directory with the sales history of each agent. So when it comes to finding a home, not just a house, this is everything you need to know, all in one place. Homes.com. We've done your homework. My mission is simple, to make you money. I'm here to level the playing field for all investors. There's always a bull market somewhere, and I promise to help you find it. Mad Money starts now. Hey, I'm Kramer. Welcome to Mad Money. Welcome to Kramerica. Other people want to make friends. I'm just trying to make you some money. My job is not just to entertain you, but to educate and teach you. So call me at 1-800-743-CNBC or tweet me at Jim Kramer. Do you ever get the sense that this market just does not want to be happy? We always seem to want something to go wrong. We almost wish it would happen. And even when it doesn't, the pajama traders trade like it is anyway. And that's how I feel about today, where the Dow lost 219 points. S&P dropped 05 And the Nasdaq backslid 0.36%. Look, I make no secret of how early I get up in the morning. It's not my choice. I'm physically incapable of sleeping in. This morning, I woke up at 3.20 a.m. I get up, I check my email, then my quote screens, then my Twitter file. My email had a bunch of, woe is me, we're going to roll back yesterday's big gains. My quote machine saw that the S&P futures were getting hammered. In my Twitter feed, it was filled with hysterical people who believed that we would get obliterated. Why? Because of the White House specifically fears that President Trump might possibly fire the special counsel, Robert Mueller, or that he might fire missiles at Syria. Sure enough, shortly before 7 a.m., we got a Trump tweet heard around the world. Russia vows to shoot down any and all missiles fired at Syria. Get ready, Russia, because they will be coming nice and new and smart. You shouldn't be partners with a gas-killing animal who kills his people and enjoys it. The futures tumbled further. A little more than a half hour later, we got the coup de grace with the president tweeting, Our relationship with Russia is worse now than it it has ever been. And that includes the Cold War. There is no reason for this. Russia needs us to help with their economy, something that would be very easy to do. And we need all nations to work together. Stop the arms race. At that moment, it looked like the Dow had opened down 300 points, and the S&P more than half of where it went out at the end of the session. And you know what? I found this whole decline perplexing. Yeah, I couldn't figure it out. 
How could the latest dust-up in Syria and our discussions with Moscow be any worse than any time in the Cold War? Since the Cold War? I mean, in the Cold War? I mean, hold on, wait a second. Now, we're, the president's saying that things are worse now than when the Cold War was on. Now, wait a second. I grew up near the Willow Grove Naval Air Station outside of Philadelphia. Now, I remember the sky dark with planes as the Cuban Missile Crisis came within an inch of destroying the world. The Russians weren't putting some conventional weapons in Syria. They were installing nukes in Cuba, 90 miles off the coast of Florida. If the Russians hadn't backed down at the last moment, we would have had nuclear war. I remember asking Pop what happened to the sun, and when he explained it was the planes, I didn't think that hiding in our cubbies in kindergarten, the preferred way to protect ourselves from raining H-bombs, would do that much to save me. Instead, I was jealous of my buddy Frankie down the block, whose parents were wealthy enough to have a fancy fallout shutter filled with cans of Chef Boyardee. Here's the thing. Whenever we have geopolitical turmoil, I always fall back on my old Bristol Myers theory. Okay, as I mentioned on Squawk on the Street this morning, the theory has it that what the heck does Syria or Russia have to do with the price earnings multiple of Bristol Myers? I just couldn't figure out why we should pay less for this stock or any other prototypical company just because the president sent a couple of menacing and hyperbolic tweets. Sure enough, the pajama traders, which is what we call the guys who trade overnight in their jammies, they got it. They got it wrong, as usual. They missed the forest for the Twitter trees, and for much of the day, the Nasdaq traded up. And S&P at a midday rally took a deposit before we got that later-day sell-off. I'm going to explain in a minute. Look, it makes sense for the market to get slammed when the president antagonizes China. If we do less trade with China, many of our companies will make less money. Numbers cut, but less trade with Russia? Who cares? Economically speaking, Russia's a gas station that happens to have a government. A trade war with China is something to worry about, but if you cut off Russia, the only thing that seems to happen is the aluminum gets more expensive. Excellent for double A, Alcoa, because Russia's output could be bottlenecked. Now, you can say, wait a second, Kramer. We did only end up going down. Sure, but in the end, we went down for a particular reason. Minutes from the Fed saying we might need faster rate hikes because the economy's getting overheated. Plus, we've had a relentless bid underneath in oil, taking up to 66 bucks a barrel. And then uh, we also had that hotter consumer price index this morning. But you know what? I'm not buying these newfound inflation fears. The Fed minutes that just came out are a month old. They don't include the weaker employment number we got last week. I think that they're a distraction. And if anything, just one more example of what's been happening during this great interregnum before earnings season, which can't start fast enough as far as I'm concerned. What do I mean? Simple. Trading was thin enough that the minutes mattered, so the market got hammered pretty much across the board, except for those pesky oils and drillers, which rally on Middle East tensions and will go back down when the situations cool off. It's always weird when you look at the non-oil standouts on a day like today because the most glaring one happened to be the stock of Facebook. For the second day in a row, founder and CEO Mark Zuckerberg dazzled by not dazzling. His legendary snappiness absent, this Zuckerberg suffers fools gladly. He almost made you believe that he's the conscience of social media. One thing's certain, even as the stock seems to like Z-Man's testimony, I think the rally has more to do with shorts that went awry. We heard endlessly about technical death crosses that were lurking. I want those guys out of who were saying that. Or investors waiting for Zuckerberg to sweat and crack and lecture Congress so uh, they, they could buy it. No, no, we got neither of those opportunities. Nevertheless, as I'm telling club members of ActionLearnersPlus.com, we simply can't like Facebook as much as we used to. While Zuckerberg may have done well in front of Congress, you know what? There's no congressional medal of testifying. You don't like a company more after its CEO gets grilled by lawmakers. You like it less because it's in trouble. In the end, these guys in Washington have no idea how Facebook works, and they wanted to regulate it. Yeah, they got to regulate 
And that's not good for the stock. Putting a bunch of geriatric legislators in charge of social media is like kind of like, I don't know, um, putting a chimp in charge of the space program. On top of that, I didn't get what I wanted from Zuckerberg an independent investigator who can come in and test the company's practices to prevent another Cambridge Analytica. Why do we need that? Because if there is another situation like this, Congress is going to take a pretty dim view of Zuckerberg's testimony, even as he only promised to do his best, not that there would be no more problems uncovered. He needs to get out ahead of the next scandal. That and not the earnings is what Facebook stock is why Facebook stock trades at such a low price during multiple. It's why we've been selling it for my charitable trust. Hey, yeah, come on. I love the numbers, but I think the numbers could come down. This stock is a lot more risky than it was a month ago. Here's the bottom line. Don't blame today's decline for, on the president. In fact, feel free to pick up some stock of Amazon into this weakness, since Trump seems to have bigger fish to fry at the moment and is not weighing in on Twitter about Amazon. The real culprit was those month-old Fed minutes, which showed a central bank that's itching to raise rates right into what could be a global slowdown. That really does impact what will pay for the stock Bristol Myers, and it won't be for the better. Let's go to Douglas in New Mexico, please. Douglas. Hi, Jim. Douglas, how are you? Good. A, a great big booyah from the land of enchantment. Glad my to question you. to you, Jim, is okay. uh, my question to you, Jim, is Square. It's pulled back about 18% along with uh, the market's volatility, and it hasn't really bounced back yet. Do you see this related to any kind of trade war issues? No, no. Or- it ran because of cryptocurrencies and because uh, the CEO was saying, listen, we're going to take cryptocurrencies. And those have cooled. And everything that is involved with crypto going down with it. I like the stock of Square, but you don't need to buy anymore here. I think it comes down. The only thing you can blame for today's decline is the Fed saying we may need faster rate hikes, even though the economy may not be accelerating. Nothing more, nothing less. Oh, man, tonight, is it time to fall back into the gap? I'm sitting down with the CEO to see if the strength of the Powell thesis is working. Then, it's the most important earnings season for one big sector. I'll reveal it and what it means for your money just ahead. And is it time to defang the fang stocks? I'll tell you why all the stocks in the current group are not, not created equal. So stick with Kramer. Don't miss a second of Mad Money. Follow at Jim Kramer on Twitter. Have a question? Tweet Kramer. Hashtag Mad Tweets. Send Jim an email to madmoney at CNBC.com or give us a call at 1 800 743 CNBC. Miss something? Head to madmoney.cnbc.com. On a rough day for the averages, let's not forget that the individual companies themselves still matter here. And some of them are doing quite well. For example, I think the resurgence of many bricks and mortar retailers is one of the great underappreciated themes of this market. However, there's some chains that appear to be sitting this one out, at least for the moment, even as they shouldn't be. Take the gap which also owns Banana Republic, Old Navy, and Athleta. Here's a stock that roared higher last year. It's up more than 50% as the rest of the cohort was kind of left for dead. But this year, as apparel has caught fire, the gap is language. It's down 9% for 2018. So what's going on here? Are investors simply circling back to the laggards, or has something changed to make the story less attractive? We know the gap reported a very strong quarter at the beginning of March, with fabulous same-store sales growth up 5%. We were only looking for 1.6%, including a 9% bump for Old Navy. 
Now, earlier today, we got a chance to sit down with Art Peck. He's the president and CEO of The Gap at Matt Boss's J.P. Morgan Retail Conference. Take a look. Bart, I've got to tell you, I'm honored because I am with the best apparel retailer in the business that perhaps no one's ever heard of. When you talk about the number that you had for Old Navy and why it was the standout in the whole, in the whole country. Well, I'm honored to be here as well, um, and I like most of what you just said, except no one's ever heard of it. So, <laughs> well, I just think which is why we're here today. They never heard of the number. They yeah. know the brand. Yeah, yeah. How did no, you do it's it? a pleasure to be here. You know, we've, we've been talking now for a while about what I call the balanced growth strategy. And what it really is, it's about, first of all, the portfolio of great brands that we have. These are amazing brands. Customers know them. Everybody knows Gap all around the whole world. You've got Old Navy, which is a killer brand, Banana Republic, and then you know our, our upstart brand, which is growing super fast, which we've talked about, which is Athleta in the performance lifestyle space. So it sits on a portfolio of great brands, and then we're managing the inside of this company to really move with how the consumer is moving, moving towards the athleisure performance lifestyle, moving away from real estate where she's not shopping anymore, mm-hmm. and just and really evolving as the consumer evolves. And you know, retail used to be kind of a set piece game. You built stores. I've really been talking a lot about, I want to soften up our asset base so that we have flexibility, so that we're nimble, so that we can move fast as our customer moves and shops in different ways. Well, you're an upfront guy. You talk about actually being in the wrong stores and the need to be able to get out of the wrong stores. How much of this is informed by big data? We've really been building back-end big data analytic capabilities now for a couple of years. And, you know, data is, a, data is a huge asset for us. It's surprising to me that more people in our space are talking about it, and especially with us, two billion visits a year between our online and our stores. We know a lot about our customers. We can see their lifetime value. We know who our most valuable customer is. And so being able to extract that data, and then, because you know we spend a lot on marketing, and it's all about traffic and getting traffic across the lease line, being able to direct our marketing spend really effectively down a return on ad spend curve so that we know what the returns are using that big data against our best customers. It's a huge asset. And structurally, because we have multiple brands and multi-channels, we've got something not a lot of other apparel companies have. So when you have good big data, what does it mean uh, in terms of what you can get a customer to uh, spend? Yeah, so if you, look at, if you look at the difference between a customer who's casually engaged and one who is really deeply engaged in our brands across channels, it's at least 10 times the value of that customer because, you know, they're buying. If it's a mom, she's buying for herself. She's buying for her family. She's probably working out, so she's buying in the active space. If she has a career, she's buying professional clothing as well. And so there's a, there's a real value to what I call, it's not, people talk share of wallet. That's mm-hmm. kind of clinical. To me, it's share of life. We have a portfolio of brands that allows us to really participate in his and her and the family's life in a way that a lot of other companies can't. And you can't just fix that overnight. If you're a mono brand, you're a mono brand. Right, well, one of the things when I listen to you, I say to myself, okay, I don't want financial engineering, but the amount of money you have spent buying back stock, you're the, your stock price is the same as it was five years ago. You had 533 million share count, now 389. I want you to spend on Athleta. I don't care about, it's like good tasting tuna versus tuna with good taste. I don't care <laughs> about a share buyback. I want you to blow out this, the concept. You're doing plus 20% on Athleta. It would change the whole way you I value the stock. And what I would say is, you know, we've upped our CapEx, so we signaled that last time. We're now spending at the level of about $800 million a year. It's a big number. Okay. Um, we obviously noted the fact that we got some advantage with the tax laws, which we're appreciative of. But 
we are disciplined and we are focused. And so the two constraints on spending, number one, I want to make sure I can deliver the return on invested capital. That's super important for our investors. It's super important to spend that money there. And secondly, any company, and if you ever hear opposite, you're, you know, they're not telling you the truth, any company has management capacity. And so what we try to do every day is spend to an ROIC number and spend to the capacity of the organization to execute. And I've been big about focus. So I agree. Um, we will always be disciplined in returning excess cash to our shareholders. We always will. But management's job, operating management's job, first and foremost, is to, profitable, to invest in profitable growth. Okay. Uh, one of the things that I've seen you uh, do better than most is uh, targeting the right people, which means using these social media. Now, social media is in the news in a different way. I don't really care about that. What I think is, in terms of reaching customers, isn't it the best? Uh, our ad spend, our marketing spend of working media has pivoted massively away from traditional media outlets and much more towards social media, whether that's um, you know, Instagram, Facebook, et cetera, et cetera. It's super effective for us. Also trackable online media where we're placing media ads in your click stream is another place where we're spending. And the cool thing about it, many cool things, but one of the cool things about it as a business person is I can look down the pipe and see what our return is. So if I'm getting a 6x or an 8x return on my advertising spend, I might say I want to spend down to a 3x return and I'm still getting an incremental return on that dollar. It's hard to do that in a lot of the traditional media. Right, so I would presume Instagram, of course, uh, uh, owned by Facebook, natural place for you to be. Correct. And it's working. And it's working. Well, you know, and I know that you can track exactly how it's working, which is something you can't do. Excellent in line of sight to returns. Okay. So let, let's talk about something. You beat yourself up too much. Can I just tell you that? I mean, around too, I've read too many comp schools. But you, you say you're not fast, uh, fast forward, uh, fast fashion enough. But people don't understand that. Can you explain yeah. to people where you're going in terms of fast fashion? Sure. So I would actually tease apart fast and fashion. Okay. Okay. Fast to me is table stakes, and it will be going forward for an apparel company. Um, with global logistics networks, using air transportation, using data, exchanging files back and forth, that has all created opportunities to speed up the product pipeline. Traditional pipeline is probably 40-some weeks from thought bubble over a designer's head to in-store. And, you know, we're now in a place in parts of our business, and frankly, it is what is fueling Athleta and fueling Old Navy. Athleta, it's bottoms complex, which is the core of the business, mm -hmm. pants, um, eight to ten weeks from I have an idea to I got product on the shelf. And that's super important because, number one, you can start to de-risk your buy by having better information about what the customer wants, whether it's print, pattern, silhouette, ankle treatment, or whatever it is. Number two, in an environment where traffic is flat to negative overall, not for us because right. we have positive traffic, but flat to negative, you're not going to buy to a positive unit number preseason, but we can feed units in season to fuel the kind of growth that you're seeing at Athleta. And that's unit growth, because Athleta is a clean reg price business. Okay, well, so we, we put all the real estate investment trusts that are involved with retail on. Uh, there are good malls, not wrong, but actual good malls, good centers uh, that have vacancies. Are we going to see Athletas more than that? Because you do not have enough Athletas. We have about 140 stores right now. The business um, is about 50-50 direct to consumer okay. online and in stores. Um, we're going to continue to build stores at a responsible rate. You know, Athletas really, I mean, it's, a, it's, it's super cool for a number of reasons, not the least of which is most retail came from physical and went online. Athletic came from online and catalog and is going physical. And we're very focused on making sure we're building the retailer of the future. 
The other thing I just want to just point about Athleta, and I think we will someday you and I will be talking a few years from now, and we'll look at this as a as a moment of the brand that consumers want in the future. So. B certified corporation, Athleta just announced that they are. That's a values issue that our customers are super responsive to. The engagement in that brand is amazing, and that's what consumers are looking for today. I don't care if it's a millennial or a 70-year-old woman. She sees that as a brand that she can relate to from a value standpoint, and it's a really powerful equation. Right, well, I just wanted to circle back from the last minute. Uh, how did you do a 9% comp throw, maybe? What was the secret there? Uh, you got to start with great products. Okay. So I've been unfairly branded as anti-creative. Um, I haven't need, done that too. You haven't done that. <laughs> I just want to get rid of it once and for all. You need amazing creative talent, and we have amazing creative talent. So it starts with great product that is on trend. The value equation in that business is, I mean, it's known. Customers okay. love it at the end of the day. We're consistent and disciplined in the underlying operations. Great marketing that's driven really positive traffic trends. You put that all together and you have a business that's gaining market share. And that's what we're all about right now is profitable market share growth. Well, I like that. Art Peck, Gap President and CEO. Thank you so much for sitting Thank you so us. much. Thanks for having me. Today's earnings season begins in earnest with four big banks, Citigroup, J.P. Morgan, Wells Fargo, and PNC reporting on Friday, followed by nearly all the other major banks coming next week. And I got to tell you, this is the most important earnings season for the big banks in years. The broader market has just had a brutal pullback, with the S&P down about 8% from its highs in January and some good performance by the financials. Well, that could be one of the few things that could get us back on track. Here's how I look at the current situation for months now. The bulls have been desperate for any kind of positive catalyst. But because there was a vacuum of earnings news, everyone kept focusing on big picture worries like the escalating trade war with China, which would, uh, finally seems maybe it's abating, or the major scandals in tech, or the ongoing chaos in the White House, or Mideast tensions. That's why we've been counting the minutes until earnings season kicks off on Friday, because the numbers will likely be pretty darn good. And it might have some positive underpinnings for the entire stock market. And look, despite all the big picture fears that we've had, uh, with the ones we've had to deal with in recent months, this remains an excellent environment for companies doing business both here and abroad. We've got low unemployment, solid wage growth, strong consumer confidence, and the rest of the world is roaring thanks to what we hope is a continued synchronized global economic expansion. All told, this could be a pretty darn good earnings season across the board. Many of the companies we've heard from, well, just in the last few weeks, delivered good numbers. Thinking about Lenar, say Nike. Put it all together and you can understand why so many investors expect this earnings season to get us out of the rut that we've been stuck in. The vacuum of news. The banks get the first bite at the apple and they're in a particularly enviable situation. You know that the financials instantly become more profitable. When interest rates go higher, both short-term rates set by the Fed and long-term rates controlled by the stock, by the uh, overall market. In terms of short-term rates, we had one rate hike in December, another one in March, and today's Fed meetings indicate that we might have a few more in their pretty recent. I'd say maybe uh, from those minutes, people are thinking that there's going to be more than two. Whenever the Fed tightens, the banks make more money off the difference between the rates they pay you for your deposits and what you pay them for the loans. That's a very solid backdrop for the banks, especially the ones with gigantic deposit bases. Here I'm thinking about Bank of America, which has seen its stock come down 9.5% from its highs a month ago. 
As for the investment banks, these guys are the big winners for the higher. They've got higher volatility, which is terrific for them. And this market, we know, has gotten a heck of a lot more volatile. I cannot overstate the importance of this shift. All last year, the investment banks saw their trading business get hammered because equities and bonds were so calm. With the market now behaving like more of a, say, a haunted roller coaster ride, a magic mountain, I bet the trading numbers will be substantially better. The volatility index, or VIX, averaged around 11 last year. Now it's almost at 20. Or in more concrete terms, in the first quarter, we had 61 trading days. On 41 of those days, the Dow Jones average had a triple-digit move compared to just 20 days in the previous quarter. Now, this rise in volatility is one of the big reasons why we've been buying Goldman Sachs for my Chapel Trust. And you can follow along by joining the ActionAlertsPlus.com club. Last time around, Goldman got dinged by some lousy trading results, and the stock has been marking time ever since. It got hit today. Now, some might say the stock market's erratic behavior will scare ordinary investors away from the whole asset class. Now, I think that's only partially true, but this is more of a problem for retail-oriented brokerage houses than for big investment banks like Goldman that's all about institutional clients. But actually, I'm not even worried about those that cater to small investors uh, because research firms have been raising numbers for the retail brokerage houses like mad, implying better that expected earnings are right down in front of us. Meanwhile, we're seeing a pickup in traditional investment banking. The global mergers and acquisition market hit a record high in the first quarter, led by some major deals here in the domestic healthcare space. You know, here I'm thinking about CVS buying Aetna, Cigna. Remember, we had the CEO one buying Express Scripts. According to a report from Merger Market, which is the authority, there was eight, there were 890 billion dollars worth of deals in the first quarter alone with the United States accounting for 44% of these transactions. The investment banks make a lot of money advising companies in these deals. The fees are huge. And by the way, the gross margins are great because not that many people are involved. How about underwriting? All right, now we've had 45 IPOs so far this year. Do you know that's up 45% from the year before? Total proceeds nearly double what they were in the first quarter of 2017? I say nice. What else? There's some open questions that the financials can help us answer. I really want to know, for instance, how mortgage activity is holding up. Lenar, the nation's t- top home builder, recently told us a business going to get better than you'd expect, even once mortgage rates resume their long march higher. If the banks pick up that argument, it would be incredibly positive. They may also help us settle the puzzling state of the consumer. We know consumer sentiment is at its highest levels in decades, yet we've seen some tepid consumer spending numbers. So which is it? Perhaps the bank's credit card results can tell us which numbers are correct. We'll also get a look, of course, at uh, defaults. So which of the big banks do I like the most going into earnings season? My topics here are Bank of America, Citigroup, J.P. Morgan, and Goldman Sachs. Why? Well, Bank of America is the most straightforward play on rising interest rates. Whenever the Fed tightens, these guys see the most benefits because they got the biggest, they got a gigantic deposit base in this country. Plus, the company's been very good at cutting costs. Brian Moynihan's really done a fantastic job there. I also like the way they've advanced their technology platform. Citigroup. I'm calling it a value play. It's a cheaper bank stock with a nice retail business from benefits from rising rates, as well as an underappreciated investment banking biz. Did, did you know that Citi just took over the top spot in global debt and equity underwritings? They do not get anywhere near the credit they deserve. J.P. Morgan, oh, uh, come on. Uh, Jamie Dimon, 
Your classic blue chip bank, great management. JPM may be the best position globally. If you're a big multinational company and you want to manage your cash efficiently under the new tax law, well, you got to go to JP Morgan. That said, it's the most expensive stock in the group, even as it's come down nine from its highs six weeks ago. Yet when you look at it on a price-to-earnings basis, as I always tell you how to value stocks on an apples-to-apples way, the darn thing sells for just 12 times this year's earnings estimates. That's the best of the best. As far as I'm concerned, that's a steal versus the rest of the stock market, which sells much higher. How about Goldman Sachs? All right, you know, I worked there in the, in the 80s. It's an extremely well-run company that I view as a comeback play based on the resurgence of volatility as well as the stronger climate for investment banking. Two of their standout units, by the way. Lloyd Blankfein will soon be retiring as CEO, and all I can say is he's a competitive fellow who's going to want to leave on a high note. This backdrop should let him do so. In fact, the only big bank I have to tell you I would actually avoid is Wells Fargo, especially with these latest reports that it could get hit by a billion-dollar fine from the Consumer Financial Protection Bureau. This story has a lot more hair on it than the other banks, and I think investors will keep selling Wells. I think they'll use it as a source of funds that they can pour into the other bank stocks. Bottom line here, come Friday, at last, we'll finally have some major individual earnings to fall back on with the large banks leading the way. I'm feeling real good about Citigroup, J.P. Morgan, Bank of America, and Goldman Sachs next week. Even if you don't want to own them into earnings, listen to what these bankers have to say, because they're incredibly important. I bet they could turbocharge the opening of this long-awaited earnings season. I want to start with John in Illinois. John. Hey, Jim. Booyah to you. Booyah, John. What's going on? Hey, Jim, as a longtime investor, I just want to start off saying thanks for being a fantastic guiding light on the market over the years. Oh, I man, really I sure it. try. And I, and I want to thank many people, by the way, on Twitter in the last few weeks who have been saying thank you for coming through this earnings season. I'm getting us to the earnings season. This is a really important moment. I think we're going to leave that big vacuum uh, that has really made it difficult to own stocks. How can I help? Uh, right on topic, Jim. It's the, the PNC Bank is my security been a great security for many years, but I saw recent news that SEC levied a fine on them, their investment group particularly, for failing to disclose conflicts of interest, resulting in them potentially not offering fully objective advice. BNC is not accepting any fine and not admitting any wrongdoing. You probably know they're reporting on Friday Q1 financials. Should I stick with them? Or yes, like I think that I'm actually a buyer of PNC ahead of the quarter. I think they will have a terrific number. I think PNC is right to own. Bank earnings are extremely important this season, more than they've been in years. And you know what? I'm getting a pretty bullish feeling about it. I much more mad money yet. Is it time for the Fang stocks to consciously uncouple? I'll tell you why it might be time for these well-known tech names to separate. Then there's no place like home, even for your next investment. I'm checking out a home builder that could put you on solid ground. And all your calls are rapid fire tonight's edition of the Lightning Round. So stick with Kramer. Tomorrow, kick off the trading day with Squawk on the Street. Live from Post 9 at the NYSE. Yeah, you know, I think at one point he's going to have to tell them how to onboard Facebook, right? Don't you think that? He's going to have to say, listen, switch to Instagram and they'll believe that's a competitor. It's a very odd time. It all starts at 9 a.m. Eastern. want to 
understand why so many investors have trouble accepting the ascendance of FANG, my acronym for Facebook, Amazon, Apple, Netflix, and Google, now Alphabet. Go watch the Zuckerberg hearings. They're the perfect microcosm for how many investors really view these stocks. When dozens of lawmakers can't seem to get their heads around how Facebook makes its money, let alone what a social network is, you better believe lots of investors who are, are in the same age bracket have a similar problem. No wonder they've, they've been, there've been money managers who've been fighting these stocks tooth and nail every second they go up. Now, look. Even I hate how these stocks trade now. You've got five gargantuan companies that all together account for roughly one-third of the whole NASDAQ. They range in size from the $129 billion Netflix, the baby of the bunch, to the $879 billion Apple. We constantly hear that they can't possibly keep climbing. The valuations can't last. The law of large numbers will crimp their growth. It's unsustainable, blah, blah, blah. All this is made worse by the ETFization of this market. Fangs become an index. Some geniuses heard me coin the acronym and decided to bunch these companies together into an index so they could market it to people who want big cap growth stocks. Right now, there are 10 of them. That's right, 10 similar Fang indices. That's ridiculous. But in a rational universe, these stocks wouldn't be so tightly linked. Facebook and Apple and Amazon and Netflix have very different business models, okay? Alphabet, too. Here's the fundamental problem. Most people over the age of 40 don't even know what these companies do. Watch Zuckerberg's testimony. Listen to those questions, and you'll find yourself wondering whether he was addressing Congress or a group of people who think that Facebook is a book of faces. Some of that's pure technological illiteracy. This stuff will never come as naturally to those of us who grew up without computers. But that's only part of the problem. The truth is, fang, it's hard to understand because these companies are constantly evolving. They change the business models all the time. There were 40 centers yesterday really just trying to figure out how Facebook makes its money. Spoiler alert advertising. I think Zuckerberg deserves a lot of credit for staying calm, doing a great impression of data from Star Trek, because it would have been very easy for him to get sarcastic. We thought Amazon was a simple retailer, but it's also a web services company that now dominates the cloud. Ten years ago, Netflix was a DVD rental service. Now it's the world's largest non-TV entertainment company, unless you count Facebook as an entertainment network. No, no one really has a clue anymore what Alphabet does, and, and they, they sure don't make it easy. It's a search company, an advertising play, autonomous driving company, makes PCs, I don't know. As for Apple, does it simply make the most beloved devices around, or is it a whole ecosystem for selling software on those devices? Believe me, if these companies made cars or homes or television shows or pills or clothes, we get it. We don't begrudge Exxon its $326 billion market cap. We aren't angry that Walmart's worth $255 billion. Our real fear deep down is that many people think that these companies, with the exception of Apple, aren't worth anything. Because no one understands them as they currently, let alone how they change so radically over the years. They just don't understand how they make their money. In the end, these are some of the greatest secular growth stories around. And even if you can't appreciate what they actually do, at least recognize, recognize that they have visionary leadership and amazing earnings per share or revenue growth. Bottom line, I'm not telling you to love Fang. I'm not urging you to embrace they're seemingly sky-high market capitalizations, although I have to tell you, they've come down a lot. I'm simply saying that they have these valuations for a reason, with many different parts of their businesses firing on all cylinders. Just because the story seems alien to you, that doesn't mean it's not real. Being too skeptical about FANG has been a mistake, people. So feel free to bet against them. But please, please, before you do, try to understand exactly what it is that makes these companies so special in the first place. Dead Money is back after the break. 
It is time! It's over the and then the lighting round is over. Are you ready, Ski Daddy? Time for the lighting round. Let's start with John in New York. John! Jimmy, booyah! Booyah, partner, what's up? I'm looking for some accolades. I picked up some GGG. Yeah, like remember we had them on. I thought they had a great business model. I'm praising my dad. I say bye. Let's go to Shane in Nebraska. Shane. A big red Cornhusker boo yaw to you, Kramer. I'll take that any day of the week. What's happening? What do you think of health equity, HQY? Don't know well enough to be able to comment on it. I'm going to have to come back and do some homework. Let's go to Andrew in Pennsylvania. Andrew. Hello, Jim. Hello, what's, what's going on? A big booyah from the Anthracite Coal region of Pennsylvania. There you go. Wrong side of, t- of state, but I'll take it. How can I help? Well, what is your opinion on Steel Dynamics? Buy, oh, it's a real good steel company. It's the only other one that I'll even put near Nucor, which is owned by my chapel trust. Let's go to Daniel in Florida. Daniel. Hey, this is Daniel. Wishing you and Kramerica a sunny Florida booyah. Thank you. How can I help? I'm calling about ticker symbol S, Sprint. Oh, I tell you, I think that you know what, when I see these stories about a takeover and I don't have any more any more insight beyond what's already been said, I think you have to ring the register. Joel in Pennsylvania, Joel. Hi, Jim. How are you? I am good, Joel. How about you? Very good. I'd like to know your thoughts on Marriott International. Marriott is terrific. I don't know if you saw how well Hilton traded today. I think Marriott is great. I need to go to Jerry in Utah. Jerry. Hey, Jim, thank you so much for all the advice you gave us, home uh, gamers. You're quite welcome. How can I help you? Uh, what do you think of me buying some shares of Las Vegas Sands? I prefer MGM, frankly. I just think it's got a little less risk. And by the way, a lot of my friends, like Stephanie Link, likes the stock of win. Let's go to Greg in New York. Greg. Hey, Jim, what's up? You're a living legend in your industry, and thanks for thank, all the years of education. Thank you. Thank you. All right, Jim, so I took, a, I took a position in MU speculating on earnings. They nicely beat. They had good guidance, over 50% year-over-year growth. And it's trading at five times earnings, but I'm in the house of pain. What should I do? What stock? Uh, Micron, okay, look, when you see a, a multiple that low, it means that people believe that they will not make the earnings next year. I have to tell you, I see some weakness in Flash. I'm a little worried about the we about possible weakness in DRAM coming, so I'm not a buyer. Let's go to Elsie in Florida. Elsie. Hi, Jim. Thank you for taking my call. Uh, I enjoy your show. I, can we talk about GE? It's been Stock has been plummeting. What, yeah, what, well, what, there was a Cal report out today that I read that was very significant. It said don't buy out of the quarter because there's some more write-downs coming. It did make me feel like, wait a second, let's hold off. If you don't own it, don't buy it. Dan, Illinois, Dan. Hey, Jim. It's Dan from the blue state of Illinois. How you doing? I am doing well. How about you? Hey, how about we send Mr. Left a message with Twitter? Oh, look, I think Twitter is, is, is doing phenomenally well. I would buy some here. If it came down, say, 10%, I would buy some more. I think Twitter's a win. And that, ladies and gentlemen, conclusion of the Lightning Round. The Lightning Round is sponsored by TD Ameritrade. Normally at this point in the business cycle, I'd be telling you to steer clear of the home builders because interest rates are heading higher. And that's going to make getting a mortgage more expensive, right? 
But last week, the nation's largest home builder, Lennar, painted a very different picture. Their theory is this time is different. Millions of people left the labor force during the Great Recession, and as they start getting jobs again, they're much more likely to buy new homes. And that's why they told us to watch the labor participation rate. They argue an uptick in that number will be more than enough to offset the impact of higher rates. So do we believe this theory? I think it's credible. Even as the Labor Department's last non-farm payroll number was really, let's say, underwhelming. That said, we could use some expert judgment here, which is why I think it's important to hear from Taylor Morrison Home. THMC, the home builder with the presence, get this, across California, Arizona, Colorado, Florida, Georgia, Illinois, North Carolina, and Texas. So yesterday I got a chance to speak with Cheryl Palmer. She's the chairman CEO of Taylor Morrison Home Corp. Now, the company is in its quiet period before earnings, so we couldn't talk about the quarter. But that still left us a lot of ground to cover. So take a look. So what I need to know is uh, there is a perception. Fed's raising rates. It could be three this year. Got to sell the home builders. Aren't there other factors at work this time, given how low rates are and how every time in the economy is a little different? Oh, so true, Jim. I, I, I subscribe to everything you said around unemployment rate, labor participation. But that's really only a couple areas. Okay. I mean, I think we should be focused on some of the demographic tailwinds we have. I mean, think about the baby boomers and the millennials. Between them, there's 150, 160 million. We're only, you know, 1.2 million houses. Um, Think about the confidence of consumers today. Um, They're feeling good about their jobs. They're starting to see income growth. Um, We have such a tight supply. I mean, the list really just keeps going. Well, I want to drill down on this, uh, these uh, different demographic cohorts. Yeah. Uh, There are still a lot of people who live with their parents, and there's still a lot of people who are turning 55, aren't there? So 25 million plus of the millennials are still living at home. Really? So you think about a third of them are still living at home. The average age of the millennial buying today, Jim, is somewhere around 30, 31. The largest group of millennials is turning 29, 30. So we have so much runway ahead. And then you think about the financial security of the boomers. So I'm very bullish about where we're going. Okay. Uh, When you say the housing market is tight, I want some people to understand we were building 2 million homes when we were a much, yes, much we were. bigger country than we are now, right? I mean, it just never came back. Why? I, I think there's a number of reasons. It took, I think if you go back four, five, six, seven years mm-hmm. ago, there was one set of reasons around people, you know, unfortunately lost their homes during the downturn. Right. So they right. had one set of circumstances. I think employment seven, eight years ago was a very different place. So I think, you know, as time has progressed, we continue to see different factors. Today, it really does come down to the labor infrastructure, lot availability. And and that's good news, bad news, because I think that gives us a lot of runway ahead Mm -hmm. um, as we're only we are continuing to build on the deficit of the supply. So we're building one, 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 two million houses a year. And we probably need to be somewhere between one five and one six. And you're pretty much covered for all of them. You got entry level, first move up, second move up, fifty five plus active lifestyle, urban infill. So you can and you can switch, right? You can pivot wherever the demand is. Where's the demand the most in these cohorts and where is it in ge- geographically? So that's the good news about what we're seeing today. And I think that's one of the things that gives us such great confidence about the longevity of the okay. cycle is truly we're seeing strength across all consumer groups. All groups. We're seeing it in the first-timers. You know, and our first-timers, about a third, third, and a third mm-hmm. for us, that first-timer, that professional to income, the affordable. So even that has multiple subgroups. Mm-hmm. That first, second-time move-up, we're seeing great strength. And the luxury market today, meaning that could be coastal at, you know, two, three, four million. That could be first-time buyer 
at 800,000 in the Bay that some might consider luxury. Wow. So we're seeing strength geographically and across consumer It's groups. one of the reasons why I've liked, I like the core and I like your stock. I, I have to take Thank advantage of this. Today is equal pay day. Mm-hmm. You're female executive. I just need you to fill us in on what you think of the subject. Well, it's certainly getting a lot of airtime. Um, and, you know, my views on this might surprise you, Jim. I think I have a very practical approach to how I feel. I mean, I think it's misunderstood as we talk about some of the generic titles. And, hey, I think we have a long way to go. I think um, in our industry and across genders, we, ha- we just have a long way to go. But the way I think about it is people make different amounts of money for different reasons. And, you know, we can look at titles and say, simply speaking, somebody with the same responsibilities, doing the same job, with the same education, managing the same book of business, they should make the same amount of money. But finding those that match is next to impossible. I look at our organization, and we pay a lot of attention to this, Jim. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, this morning you mentioned we had uh, our division presidents up there. About a right. third of our management is female. I saw that. I thought that was, wow. I said, that's different from what I would have expected. It's no. pretty different you for know? the industry, yes. but I'm quite proud of it. And, you know, we have women that make in the same roles more than the men, and in sometimes men that make more than the women because you have to look at more than their role. You have to look at their responsibility. So certainly as a country, we have a long way to go. I think the real question we have to ask, though, is do we have enough women? And do we have diversity, not just in our business, but across? That's, that's really where the challenge lies. Then we can talk about equal pay. Fair enough. I'd like to leave it on that, I think, because that's a very thoughtful answer to a, a tough question for the whole country. Thank, Thank you. you so much. But that's Cheryl Palmer, Chairman, President, and CEO of Taylor Morrison Home Corp. Remember, in quiet period, but I can tell you doing quite well. Stick with Kramer. After the close night, another bad quarter from Bed Bath & Beyond. I mean, what are those guys doing? Like I said, there's always a bull market somewhere. I promise I'll find it just for you right here on Mad Money. I'm Jim Cramer, and I will see you tomorrow. Take your business further with the smart and flexible American Express Business Gold Card. It offers flexible spending capacity that adapts to your business. You can also earn up to $395 in annual statement credits on eligible purchases at select business merchants. That's the powerful backing of American Express. Terms apply. Learn more at americanexpress.com slash businessgoldcard.